Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. In our last episode, that's Go Bold number 38, we spoke with Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot Lieutenant Colonel David McLeod, who was the commander of Air Task Force Romania for Block 54 of NATO Enhanced Air Policing in Romania. Our episode today is a compendium to that episode because we had the honor to speak with Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Latwaitis, a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot who is the commanding officer of 425 Tactical Fighter Squadron, the Alouettes, which is based at Canadian Forces Base Bagotville. The colonel served as commander of Air Task Force Romania for Block 60 of the NATO Enhanced Air Policing Mission in Romania, which occurred in the latter half of 2022. We're publishing these episodes on NATO Enhanced Air Policing back-to-back, in order to get an appreciation for that quick reaction alert mission and how Canada has conducted deployments for it, and more importantly, to get an appreciation of how global events like COVID or the war in Ukraine has affected the mission. You'll hear how the Air Force formed its contingent for Block 60 and how they had the opportunity to work alongside Romanian colleagues and several allies in conducting interoperability training to enhance NATO's collective assurance and deterrence on the southeastern flank, and all of this while in the shadow of war in Europe. It's a great conversation which highlights the importance of training in particular, so we hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get at it. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. As we've done over the course of this podcast, we speak with sailors, airmen, marines, guardians, folks that serve their nations from across different allies. And one of the recurring episodes that we have is to speak with the Royal Canadian Air Force, which deploys an air task force to Romania. And that air task force consists principally of CF-18 Hornets, where they serve in the role of enhanced air policing under NATO. So today we are joined by Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Latwaitis, who is the detachment commander at the Air Task Force Romania. And he is joining us today from Romania. So Colonel, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you here, and uh, it's nice that we've got good comms. So as I do with all of my guests, uh, Colonel, I start by asking, what made you join the military, and what made you pick the branch that you did? Well, I think for like like a lot of young kids, I went to air shows, and uh, I've always loved aviation, and so I always always thought I wanted to be a pilot, and then as I started to think about it more and more and got, uh, became more of a possibility, I absolutely wanted to. And then uh, I applied for the military. I was born on the East Coast, so I ended up doing a year of uh, prep school in uh, Quebec and then eventually uh, got in got in full time and then uh, pilot stream from there and uh, haven't really looked back. So it's been a it's been a real amazing trip. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and so some people join through military academies. Some people do direct entry. Uh, what was your path? I originally applied for school out on the East Coast and then uh, was waiting to hear back from the military and then eventually got a call back for the military and then uh, attended RMC in uh, Kingston. So I did four years at RMC and then uh, during that did a bit of the pilot training and kind of in the summertime. Uh, and then once finishing there, I uh, started doing it full time in Moose Shop. 
Nice. What was your first recollection of of getting into a military plane? And I know in training you go in phases, and you know you start out with something very simple, and then you build from there. Um, I guess I'd like to ask your very first experience, and then if you kind of talk me through the next steps up, because you get into aircraft that have more and more performance. Sure. The uh, first airplane I ever flew in, kind of at the controls, with was with a friend in Kingston. I just I'd received a lot of advice. Do you need to get a license before you join? She, you know, do you, you know, do you learn methods that are kind of a civilian or do you wait to join the military? So he said, get a, get five hours. So I remember the first time, you know, the airplane's so small, uh, it's very light on the wheels. So it, it, it feels uh, very kind of light at the control as well. Um, so it was a, it was a very different experience from now, but, uh, looking back on it then, of course, everybody, like when they see an F-18, there's all these switches, you don't know what they do. Um, trying to understand kind of the, uh, you know, if it rolls right, use the horizon, all the, all the, all the things that aren't really natural, um, when you first kind of get in an airplane. And that was obviously just trying to get the comfort to get the lingo down a little bit. And then, uh, the first time with the military, it's so structured. And the way they do it in Portage on the um, Slingsby Firefly at the time in 2003, and it's very structured. They go right from zero. So everything is assumed that you've never seen or flown an airplane before. And then in rather quick succession, uh, get into this thing and with the instructor beside you and they kind of walk you through, but they also give you enough to just sort of, they expect you kind of just to go. And certainly remember taking off the first time and heading out to the training area. You don't really know where you're going. You have a rough idea. You're kind of nervous on the radio. And then, uh, of course, everybody, you always uh, look up to the older uh, students that are soloing and you really want to get that first solo and they dunk you in the bathtub and uh, it's a big kind of rite of passage to get through. And then uh, that goes by really quickly in a summer. And then the really big jump is getting to Moose Jaw. And that's, I mean, there's so much heritage and history, uh, even recently with the uh, Tudors. And then as we transition to the Harvard too, and there's so much um, it's such a powerful and high performance aircraft. I, I think the most distinct memory I ever had is cause we, you know, we do, it's called chair fly, right? You stare sure. at this, you, you, know, you stare at this picture on the wall of what the cockpit looks like. And you, you memorize all your checklists and you try to think of what it's, you know, visualizing what it's going to be like, what you say, you got all the notes from all the previous courses. And of course, all the displays are on, on this, uh, picture and I just remember getting in the actual airplane. Of course, you do the walk around, you do the sim and everything. But when you're out on the flight line and the smell of fuel and all the noise, and you got your mask on, you got your helmet on. And I remember sitting in the cockpit in the front. And of course, the instructor's in the back. So you really feel like you're kind of there by yourself. And uh, of course, all the displays are, are dark. The battery's not on. And this, the prop on the Harvard is, uh, I think it's 96 inches. So it's this really big propeller. Right. And, you know, PT6 engine, turbine engine. I just remember, you know, putting the battery on and then about to hit start and just hearing this thing start is like, oh my gosh, what am I getting myself into? And <laughs> uh, of course, the instructor's just bored because I'm taking forever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they've seen it a thousand times. And then uh, so had a had a real fun time in Moose Jaw, learned a lot, uh, great instructors, and then moved on to the Hawk. Did a quick conversion of the Hawk and then up to Cold Lake for phase four. And that's the fighter lead in training in Cold Lake through the winter, uh, which is a fairly long winter with the, uh, some of the challenges flying through ice and snow, of course, in Northern Alberta. And then uh, eventually out of the F-18 and uh, 
I've been on the F-18 since uh, almost 15 years, since 2008. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Um, you kind of went through that really quickly in the sense of, the, and, no, 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 no. And that's totally cool. But uh, I was kind of keen to know the difference between the Harbor two and jumping into the Hawk, because now you're going from a turboprop into a, into a jet powered aircraft. But, um, mm-hmm. but I guess the Harvard two kind of prepares you enough that maybe that leap isn't as, as um, significant as I'm thinking in my mind. Well, the Harbor is actually, can be I wouldn't say it's a hard airplane to fly, but it it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of attention. You know, with the with that size of the propeller and the uh, the, the amount of power in the engine, uh, you know, you're actually using the rudder. Whereas in a in a jet powered aircraft, there's not really as much torque generated. So you're not really using the rudders as much as you would in a, in an aircraft like the Harvard. So the coordinated flight um, is actually takes to do it well is actually very challenging and not something that uh, I think I would have mastered in just over 200 hours in that. But uh, certainly the first thing in the Hawk, that's a big difference. So in a propeller driven aircraft like the Harvard, it, it accelerates very quickly. So it kind of gets off the line very fast, but it peaks out sort of in the 250. I think the max speed was 314 knots or something like that. Okay. But it takes a lot to get kind of from that 250 to 300, whereas the Hawk, of course, once it, it's kind of like a boat, once it hits a plane, uh, like on plane on the step, it just keeps accelerating. You go through 250 and 300 and 350 and 400, and that real sense of speed starts to set, set in for sure. Right on, right on. And so you kind of just add, you start slowly adding distances uh, to where you start your normal. So if you normally would call the tower at 10 miles, Maybe you start at 15 and you know, if you're brand new, maybe you start at 20 just to give a little bit of extra time because uh, everything comes pretty quickly. Right, right. Oh, that's a great way to explain it. You know, one of the things that that strikes me is I've worked a lot with the local police department here. And so my ear is tuned to listening to the radio and there can be lots of people talking, but you peak up when you hear your number or your car, right? And it strikes me as flying is a skill in and of itself, but even just listening and knowing when to talk and when not to talk and what to say. And, you know, of course, that's what training's all about. You become absolutely proficient. But I imagine that at the beginning, that's one of the harder things, like that whole air traffic control kind of aspect. It can be, especially uh, one of the things they do in Moose Jaw, especially, is that they have the training area. So you're not really talking on the radio to, you know, the rest of the, you know, the Air Canada's and West Jets. You don't hear a lot of that. But we used to do a, the first trip where we, you know, you go to, you go to Swift Current or Regina or Saskatoon, you know, they tell you to switch frequencies onto, you know, Winnipeg Center or something like that. And you just, you want to sound like you know what you're doing, but you can kind of tell that you're, <laughs> you kind of, you know that everybody's listening. And of course they all know the call signs of all the trainers out there and they can, uh, they can tell that it's probably your first or second time kind of leaving the uh, local area. Yeah. You're not sure what to say and you're right. You, you hear a clearance you weren't expecting and you're just completely caught off guard. Right. And so oftentimes you kind of hear the, the IP voice of confidence steps in and kind of saves the day for you. But it's uh, it's definitely an art to know what to say and when to say it and just when to say nothing. Right, right. Yeah. And I suspect that that's just a function of sets and reps. The more you do it, the more comfortable you get. Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah, right on. Uh, so you mentioned going over to the operational training unit. So this is when you first fly the CF-18. And I suspect somewhere in your career, you probably got into the CF-18 and perhaps had a familiarization flight in a B model before you actually took controls. But uh, I've asked the question of other guests and I'm like, oh, tell me the first time you hopped in the jet and, and flew it. And they're like, well, you know, it wasn't too foreign because I had, I've had rides in them before. So I suspect that that might be the case for you as well. But I'd love to hear about your first experience of getting into the CF-18. Uh, yeah, no problem. And, and you're, you're right. I was uh, OJT, uh, got a backseat ride. Stared at the seat back in front of me so I didn't throw up and uh, didn't say a word and just try to enjoy every minute of it. But um, <laughs> certainly the the uh, the first time starting the Hornet, I mean, it just it's got such a you know there's so much power in the aircraft and you're really sitting on it. And the big difference with the kind of looking back to the Harvard example, there's nothing in front of you. The whole jet is behind you. So when you look out of the cockpit, you only see over the front of the nose and you're sitting quite high from a lot of the other trainers. And as the two engines start, it's the first two engine aircraft we usually start. Uh, so when they're both going, the jet, it, it just, I'll never forget the sound of that engine. The first time you're kind of in control of it, uh, starting it up, it's uh, it's the sound I still love today. Oh, for yeah. Sure. Yeah, me too. And I don't even fly it. But I've had the fortune to go up in a Canadian CF-18 and that was a that was an awesome experience. So I'm very, very grateful to the people that made that happen to this day because not many people get the opportunity. No, they don't. That's a, I'm really happy that worked out. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was an awesome ride. The nice thing about having had that experience is it gives me an appreciation for what you guys do and what you go through. You know, it's it can be a violent ride. Like, of course, you know, you're strapped in and what have you, but pulling G's is physically taxing. And uh, I don't think you're going up and doing BFM every day, but uh, because, you know, now let's face it, a lot of the types of weapons that are being used today, especially from the air to ground perspective, are precision weapons. And so usually that allows you to deliver from a level attitude. That's not to say that's always the case, but um, I think that's probably bodes well for the machines because you're not putting stress on them. But uh, you can save, save some wear and tear. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, you know, when you got to get into the merge, then uh, fights on, right? Yeah. So, well, I mean, we've seen that through kind of history too, right? When they they looked at uh, with the advent of all the beyond visual range air to air missiles, they didn't think they'd have to put a gun on the F four, and then sure enough, they ended up uh, back at the merge, wishing right. they had a gun. So right. It's, uh, yep. Whatever, whatever new technology, there's always something to counter it. Uh, so exactly, and it's kind of hard to to counter a bullet. Yep. Yep. So uh, okay, so you got to tell me then about being at the controls for the first time. And like you said, you know, it was an awesome feeling hearing those engines start up. But tell me about your yep. first flight and. And it strikes me as quite interesting. You know, you mentioned that you're there in the winter typically and going through this mm -hmm. long course. Um, Man, it's hard enough to learn a new weapon system like a fighter jet. Um, mm -hmm. Do it in the type of weather that happens at Cold Lake. That's got to add another element of sportiness to it. Oh, it it, it certainly does. Uh, I've sat in the back of a lot of uh, new starts as well, I'll call it. It can take 40, 45 minutes. And uh, you see a lot of the instructors going out with full mitts on and, you know, dress for the cold and we always look at the uh, the technicians that are standing out front just kind of like anytime let's go yeah. let's get this thing going and, uh, yeah, but right. the uh, 
And the one thing that the the jet absolutely loves the cold when it's running after it gets started, of course, with the cold, uh, dense air. So uh, that's another thing. I mean, you just cannot replicate in a trainer's uh, a clean jet and minus 25 and full afterburner. Uh, I mean, it just, you very careful not to overspeed the gear, uh, even with the nose high, you know, even with the power back. And then uh, first run, they used to always want us to go supersonic, uh, which, you know, no, it doesn't make any sound. You can't hear the difference. You can barely tell it in the jet. Um, you just see the 1.01 and then 1.02 as it counts up, and uh, and that's kind of it. But uh, that's kind of the second one I'll, I wouldn't forget is just how quickly it accelerates in those conditions. I mean, the cable's about 1,500 feet down the runway, and the jet's lifting off just after. So that's, it's, uh, that's it's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. And then of course you keep building on that, you know, you get into, you know, weapons employment and EFM. It is an art and it takes years to build that craft. And obviously there is a schedule within the operational training unit and certainly within squadrons where you graduate to different levels of competency and responsibility. Um, But Notionally speaking, how long do you think it takes to go from a first exposure to the CF-18 in simulators and then getting to the point where you're a qualified line pilot? The course is about nine months, I'd say, at 410, give or take. Um, we've done years past where we do sort of two courses running, but it's about a nine-month course. Now, that gets you on the line. So one of the unique things of the fighter force, not just our Air Force, of course, but around the world, is that we train our new folks to be aircraft captains because there there aren't duels, you know, ready for combat. So it's a big mentality shift. Whereas a lot of the other communities train and they to go to be a first officer. So there's more time to sort of season into the role. Uh, we certainly do that as a you know as a young winger, but there's still the aircraft captain right away. So I'd I'd say by the time somebody hits the squadron to where they're starting to feel comfortable, it still takes about another year really to you where you, you settle into your role and where you're feeling um, proficient in the jet. But to do everything, uh, I don't think anybody would say they've ever gotten as good as they want to be. There's always more time that they want to have and uh, find the next challenge, if that makes sense. It does indeed, for sure. Um, so in your training and in your operational career, obviously you fly all over your place. Right now I'm talking to you from Romania, where you're the detachment commander, but if you don't mind, give me a little bit of flavor of your experiences, you know, places you've been, some interesting milestones in your fighter career thus far. Uh, sure. Uh, was originally posted at Bagabell 425 Squadron. I uh, had the opportunity to deploy to, uh, in 2011 uh, to Sicily as part of uh, Opmobile over Libya. And then from there, did the fighter weapons instructor course. I was posted to Coal Lake, Alberta at 409 Fighter Squadron. And then uh, eventually through the standards, uh, fighter standards. And then I was an instructor at 410 as well in Coal Lake. And then went through Toronto, through Staff College, down to uh, Nora Northcom for three years, uh, of course, during COVID. And then uh, just got back to uh, Bagaville. As an IP, had the opportunity as well to deploy an op impact in Kuwait, flying over Iraq and a little bit of Syria. And then uh, here we are in Romania. That is super cool. So I had the good fortune to be in Trapani, Italy, when NATO and the Allies were doing the campaign in Libya. And uh, I had the opportunity to go up in one of the CC-150 Polaris air refueling tankers and uh, 
unfortunately, I didn't get to see any CF-18s refuel uh, in that occasion. Um, we ended up refueling uh, Typhoon and some Mirage F1s and some Mirage 2000s. So it was super cool. But um, who knows? Maybe I was there at the same time you were. Yeah, probably. I suspect that was your first time in combat. It was. It was. I always find that fascinating in the sense that here you are, you're preparing your whole career for getting the call to go into combat. Um, It is your profession, right? Like, I mean, you know that that's why you're doing the training every day. Um, But what was it actually like on that first day for you when you know you were going to cross the line? I think most people, they don't want to let down their peers. They don't want to let down the squadron. They don't want to let down the the organization, all the people that have put in all the work, the armors that build and load. There's there's a lot of pride in every step that kind of, I guess we could say we have the privilege to sort of represent the one flying the jet that day, but there's so many people that get it airborne. Uh, so I think you feel the weight of that pressure more of a, to do the, you don't want to base, I don't want to say you don't want to mess up. That's not it. It's just, you feel that you want to do the, the right thing uh, as professionally as you can. And I think that because of the confidence you have in a lot of the training and a lot of the repetition and a lot of the, um, you know, the work that's gone into it, there's a, there's a confidence there that you've done everything you can to be as prepared as you can be. So a lot of the nerves tend to go away. So even when the, the threats might pop up, you're prepared because you've talked about it, you've briefed it. It's, it, it's, it's something when somebody shoots at you for the first time, for sure. Um, but it's, you know, you, you've typically tried to put yourself not in a position of vulnerability, I guess you could say. So you're, uh, and that wasn't, um, you know, that was, it wasn't a completely permissive environment for sure, but it wasn't by the, certainly by the time I got there, um, you know, more AAA than surface air missiles, that kind of thing. So um, we weren't feeling overly threatened from a lot of the uh, the positions on the ground. Hey folks. Here's a message about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Did you know that Cubic supports combat training by providing warfighters a common data model called SPEAR? And SPEAR stands for Simplified Planning, Execution, Analysis, and Reconstruction. SPEAR was envisioned, designed, and fielded by current and former warfighters. The software suite ingests data from multiple domains like air, land, sea, space, and cyber, and all environments like live, virtual, and constructive, regardless of how that data is captured, and it translates it into a common model. SPEAR is used to support mission planning, execution, and debrief, and it enables subjective data labeling and categorization throughout the mission cycle, the result of which is an enriched data file which can be used for learning management, readiness assessments, artificial intelligence, and machine learning advancement. The revolutionary SPEAR software allows warfighters to visualize operations throughout the mission training cycle or during combat operations, and that enables forces to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, the SPEAR common data model enables real change. To learn more about it, please visit cubic.com. Now let's get back to our chat. Is there a particular mission during that campaign that stands out to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's always interesting stories. I would say probably one that stands out the most to me. And I remember, cause I was flying with a good buddy of mine. 
and we were, you know, we were, uh, flying across. It was, it was night of course, and we were right next to Tripoli and for whatever reason, the, uh, kind of the Eastern shoreline just lit up with AAA and you could just, it, it, it didn't really have that connection to, is this really happening? And again, we didn't really feel threatened. We were flying at an altitude that we didn't, uh, that would keep us, uh, you know, relatively safe from any of that, but it just, it, I don't know. It was just one of those memories that kind of just gets uh, stuck in your head that uh, you're like, yeah, there, it, it's really happening down there. And that one definitely is, is, is something I won't forget. And then uh, certainly the first time ever employing a, employing a weapon kind of in anger is, uh, you know, as you, know, you get about 30 seconds till the bomb's going to hit and you're just kind of counting it down. It counts it down on the HUD and, you know, it hits zero. And usually it seems to take forever for it to, to actually hit, but uh, the weapons hit their target and, Right and it's, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's obviously got to be one of those seminal moments in a career, a fighter pilot career. Um, do you do you recall? Um, uh, uh, of course, you recall um, what actually was your target at the time, and what did you use? Because obviously, there's GBUs, there's JDAMs. I saw both on the line in Trapani. Yeah, we didn't have. Uh, we were dropping GBU twelves, mm-hmm. and it was on a uh, vehicle in a tree line. Well. Yeah, I'm sure that vehicle is no more. I don't think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so now here you are as the detachment commander for Air Task Force Romania. Uh, tell me about the planning for that rotation. Um, how much in advance does it begin prior to, to you guys actually going wheels up from Canada? So our, our squadron was identified in the, in the rotation plan, so it would... Um, go back and forth between three wing and four wing, and then it would switch between the squadrons. So as we were discussing before we came on, it's 433, then it went to 409, and then to 425 uh, squadrons between the two wings. So when 409 returned from ATFR 21, uh, they do the end of tour report, and that gets back brief to some of the senior leadership. So as the identified probable squadron going, uh, we attended that and listened. So that would have been probably January of 22. Uh, I would say that we really started looking into this. We, we always had a plan and we, we had started it and we had shaped the training of the squadron around that as well. Uh, so around January of 22, we really started getting into the, the task force composition, uh, what we thought we were going to do, uh, how many jets, you know, the duration of the mission as everything starts to firm up. Uh, of course, after the invasion of 20 or the further invasion on the 24th of February, uh, a lot of that planning started to change uh, rather quickly. Uh, okay, that is something that is of particular interest to me. And I think to any listener, because it begs the question, um, how did things change? Well, and it, it depends on your perspective, I think. And that's, uh, it was a really, because when, they, when the evasion occurred, of course, nobody knew what would happen. So we didn't know... And it's hard to think back even now that, you know, there were Russian forces in Kiev. Uh, there were landing craft in Odessa. The Moscow is still in the Black Sea. And it looked like they were going to be able to, uh, frankly, you know, they think the expectation was that they were going to do much better than they have. And thankfully they haven't. Um, Agreed. So we we weren't really sure what environment, because that was, you know, February, March. And we were always planned to come on this deployment in July. So between March and July, there was a real unknown period of what type of environment are we going to be coming into? Are they going to push through Odessa all the way to the Romanian border? Um, at that point, 
in May, we came out to do the recce and the uh, UK was doing the EAP block in front of us. Mm-hmm. They were flying a, an enormous amount of uh, flights. Of course, the Russians had taken Snake Island quite famously. And uh, as I said, they had a lot of, there was a lot of, a lot of unknowns. So part of what we were trying to do was figure out uh, how, how do we think the situation is going to look in Ukraine? And then what does that mean for NATO? And then what is NATO going to decide? And then ultimately, what does that mean for us? Right. And, and that, that process, as you'd well imagine, was a iterative process over a few months. And we get bits of information and direction from the higher headquarters and we shift our plan. And uh, ultimately, we started with the same task force composition as uh, last year. Because uh, as I said, we were at their editorial report. They said, here's the number of people we recommend you take. So we said, okay, if that worked for you, it'll probably work for us. And then uh, by the May timeframe, we ended up taking about an extra 20, 21, 22 people. And we ended up just around 175 people and uh, eight jets total. Yeah. So eight jets, that's that's a different number from previous discussions I've had with your detachment commander colleagues. Um, talk to me a little bit about that because numbers in the past have been five jets, sometimes six. Um, eight is a new number. So one of the kind of one of the marquee training events we were looking at was uh, exercise thrashing viper. And that was hosted from the Bulgarian Air Force with the United States Air Force. They, they didn't end up participating in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, with the Greeks, uh, the Romanians. And to ensure that we would get what we wanted out of that exercise, plus a bit of the unknown what the EAP mission was going to look like. We weren't sure if we were going to be flying air patrols, if we were going to be flying intercepts every other day. We just we weren't sure of the environment. So the, the extra aircraft added a bit of... I'd say assurance that we could do both. It was, uh, I'd say better to take more. And then if we, if it deemed it wasn't necessary, then we would, we would send them home, which is what we did. And we send uh, one of them home. So we ended up with seven jets for the majority. Okay. Uh, awesome. So clearly the requirement for having eight, uh, for the whole rotation was not necessary, but that's a good thing. Um, when you left Canada, did all eight jets go together or did you go in groups? Well, they went on the same day, but they went in two groups. So okay. we, we, we contracted a air-to-air refueler uh, plus the CC-150. Uh, they actually ended up getting delayed for a couple of days due to weather in Iceland, but they left Bagaville, uh, the contracted tanker, at KC-135. took five jets and then the CC-150 took three. And they landed uh, directly into Presswick in Scotland and then uh, spent, I believe it was a day and a half-ish there, kind of two days. And then uh, from there, they took the CC-150 in two drags to get down here. Okay, cool. And how did that go? So the U.S. Air Force operates a whole whack of them. And I suspect over your career, you've probably had ample opportunities to refuel from those aircraft. We have, it has the the multi-in-point refuelers, the MIPR pods. Mm-hmm. So it's not the center. It wasn't the center line boom. It was the uh, the wing uh, probe and drill. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Well, like I mean, uh, air refueling is so important, and I think uh, it'll be wonderful when the Royal Canadian Air Force gets a replacement uh, under the strategic tanker transport capability with the new A330 MRTTs. Uh, you know, they can pass a lot of fuel. So hopefully that'll help facilitate the the job uh, that you guys have to do. Yeah, absolutely. They've got a huge offload. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you've refueled from them as well. Like over the course of your career, uh, you know, there's so many nations now that are operating that tanker. We actually refueled off the Voyager, which I think is like A330 with the UK, um, right. actually about a month ago uh, on one of the exercises here. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, a- you know, I've, I've heard pilots talk about refueling off the KC-135, the Iron Maiden, uh, <laughs> and then people talk about refueling off the C-130 tanker. Um, and how that's, you know, even though you're slower, it's so much nicer to kind of plug that basket. Uh, what's it like with, with the Voyager? It's, it's so much nicer than the, uh, the Iron Maiden. It's, uh, the, the thing with the, uh, the 135 on the center line is that it, it doesn't really move that much. Right. There's always, uh, there's always arguments among, uh, fighter pilots and KC-135 crew that do they move the boom on purpose or is it locked in place? We're all convinced they move it. They always tell us it's locked. Uh, nobody seems to have a definitive answer. It's a bit of a running joke because every time we miss, we tell them to stop moving it and they say <laughs> it's locked in place. And, um, but it's it doesn't move that much, but it's very unforgiving of errors. And it's a metal basket. So if you got to put the 90 degree kink in the hose to get it to transfer fuel. So it's uh, you're in much closer proximity to the aircraft as well. Right. And, uh, and of course, in... Then you you add the you know the added pressure of the boom operators lying down in the back through that window that they always take the pictures from and they're they're talking to you on the radio and now you're you know somebody's watching and you're just like just let me tank and I just want to get my gas and carry on and you're right the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the, uh, yeah and must- of course there's yeah when there's when there's only one in the center the rest of the formation is all in line waiting for you as well so right. as every time you miss you can feel the other you know three people watching you like come on just get your gas and get out of the way um, <laughs> yeah and yeah, it's not like you'd get any ribbing at the squadron right so oh, no. well we never we, we always told the younger guys especially like never makes never make fun of somebody else's or fueling because the next day it's going to be you right uh, yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah yeah and some days like I me mean, no matter how much you've done it i suspect that it's you know you, you can have off days some days it, it just doesn't seem to work uh, right. you're, just, you're just out of sequence with the basket for whatever reason it just doesn't work yeah yeah but, uh, hopefully at some point in time it works and you get your gas but <laughs> that's yeah. right exactly <laughs> i yeah. totally get what you mean um so okay so t- tell me what it was like once you got feet on the ground there um aside from the recce was this your first time at the base in romania it was yeah so we got here. The UK was still here. We were doing our handover with them. They were here with their typhoons. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was uh, we had the two-wing AFAS team here. The theater activation team was here in front of us. They did it. And I got to say, they did a phenomenal job. They took care of a lot of the contracting, a lot of the admin. Uh, we had a relatively small team, the advanced team, uh, just kind of getting waiting for the jets to arrive, waiting for all the technicians to arrive. Um, I'm in the tent tier now, which where we started. I wouldn't say it's austere, but you know, challenging environment. A lot of people trying to fight for space, and you know, everybody's got a job they need to do. And folks are putting in long days, and you know, you're never really sure how the transit's going to go. And we're waiting on word for when the jet's going to arrive, and how the mission is evolving, and and all the final pieces for the um, all the agreements between NATO and Canada and Romania. And, even Bulgaria, just how it's all going to really look and sound and getting all the normal in briefs kind of to follow just for the local area. And, you know, it was, it was, it wasn't hectic, but it was, it was busy. 
Right, right. Uh, interesting. And of course, you have eight aircraft there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is the apron where you've got, you know, is it large enough to, to accommodate all those jets? It is. I wouldn't put any more here. But right. uh, that's, uh, we made it work. And I mean, the, the Hornet's a carrier aircraft, so it can turn in pretty tight corners. So, um, And you can fold yeah. your wingtips up. So <laughs> yeah, if you had to. You if you had can. to, right. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Okay. So you mentioned that the British with their typhoons were flying a lot. Um, mm-hmm. What was their biggest piece of advice for you guys as you were doing the handover? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think they're their rotation experience was very different from ours because they were really living the reaction to the invasion. Right. Uh, so they were flying kind of all day, all night, sort of, you know, putting up air patrols while still holding their alert posture. By the time we settled in, things had, uh, even during the takeover, things were quieting down in terms of the NATO reaction of uh, the number of aircraft and the positioning of aircraft. So really a lot of what we did with them was just sort of, how do you operate around here? What's your recommendation for local procedures? Of course, we got a, all of it from the Romanians, um, but just the Romanians, of course, it's their it's their backyard. They're used to all of it. But uh, just some of the just some of the smaller things. Of, uh, we did get an opportunity to fly with them before they left, which was uh, which was definitely a treat. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, so we just got our technical agreement in in the last minute, and then we were able to get uh, one four ship with the uh, two Hornets and two Typhoons out to the area to do some training together. Uh, uh, beautiful. They, yeah, and they left the uh, next day, I believe. So some BFM? It might have involved some BFM, yes. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying this in a critical way in any shape or form, but obviously the Typhoon it was designed a little bit after the CF-18, and mm-hmm. um, it's a very maneuverable aircraft. Every aircraft has its strengths and weaknesses, as as you very well know. Um, what was it like flying against them? Because I love hearing about BFM, right? And uh, especially dissimilar, you know, dissimilar air combat maneuvering. That's that's kind of where it's it's at because you can fly against another CF-18, a blue and a red, and try to exploit the the capabilities of the aircraft that you know. But it's it's kind of different when when you go up against a different type of aircraft. Um, and then, of course, it depends on pilot skill, of course, uh, always. But yeah, I'd love to know about what that was like and, and maybe some of the other opportunities you've had along the way to fly with other aircraft. Uh, well, I mean, I, I wish I had better news from the uh, the fight with the uh, Eurofighter. Of course, we had just come in off the transit, so we we still had three tanks on the jets. So they oh. weren't... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, they weren't all that. They weren't at their peak maneuver potential. I'll call it right. Uh, right. But I mean, the the Hornet, a clean Hornet can really do. It's a very maneuverable, very stable. Uh, it's an amazing platform for one v one. Right. When the three t- when the three tanks are on it, it, it it's a uh, it it loses a bit of that our, our high away uh, advantage. Right. Um, right. so that's, that's where we see a bit of that, uh, struggle. And then it doesn't have the, uh, the energy addition. So the power, the thrust to weight that the typhoon has. So we can see that they can gain, you know, it starts off rather neutral and then it, and then it can, uh, they, you can see their power, uh, from there. But, um, we fought a lot with the Romanian F-16s, which was, was really interesting. Uh, we got four of our guys got the opportunity to fight with the Bulgarian MiG-29s. Uh, that was certainly a highlight for them. Awesome. And uh, they, I've, I've heard nothing but good things. Very professional. Uh, all very well done. Flown, and that was part of Thrashing Viper. Uh, flown over Bulgarian airspace. So our guys tanked, 
I hit the KC-135 in the airspace just in the south of Romania and then fought with the Bulgarian MiG-29s and then uh, certainly becoming a more rare opportunity as time goes on. Right, right. Yeah, it would be pretty cool to, to fly with them and yeah, train we, with them. We unfortunately didn't really get the chance to fly with the the MiG-21s this rotation. They, they were predominantly F-16s with Romania, but... Uh, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah it would have been kind of cool. Know I know that's been a highlight for previous rotations, but uh, we didn't have that opportunity. We, as mentioned, we had a lot of opportunity with their F-16s, and which we were very happy to do, especially against some of the visual training that we the opportunity we had. But uh, yeah, we did we did not fly with their MiG twenty ones. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so let's talk about the main uh, reason for being there, and that is NATO enhanced air policing and quick reaction alert. So uh, as I understand it, the Royal Canadian Air Force is there to support the Romanian Air Force. Um, But uh, yeah, talk to me about quick reaction alert and uh, some of the missions that you guys have flown, some of the intercepts. Um, I'd be very keen to know because uh, as you mentioned, Things seem to have settled after the initial invasion into Ukraine and uh, all of the fallout from that. But I'd love to know your perspective on the mood or the atmosphere that exists there now. It's um, it's a good question. It's uh, one of the one of the more difficult things to do. I think while we were here is to be because we're not far. We're about two hundred miles from Kherson. Uh, much closer to Odessa and closer still to Snake Island, which, you know, the Russians had vacated before we got here. Um, So the proximity certainly plays into the tension. And we see a lot of that. We see a lot of what they're flying. Uh, We know that they know that we're flying. Um, And, you know, a lot of, we've gotten a a lot of questions about, because we, you know, the intercepts are, I'd say, much lower than previous rotations. Uh, We didn't go and intercept any Russians because the, the tensions are quite high and we're not, we didn't want to, you know, anytime we put fighters in close proximity, uh, unless we have to, uh, you know, it was more of a, obviously of a deterrence posture, uh, de-escalation, I should say, um, rather than being out there in a provocative stance. So um, a different, a different mentality, higher risk as well uh, out towards um Ukrainian airspace, which of course runs the same border with the with the Bucharest DFIR, which is kind of our traditional area uh, for EAP. Right. Wow. Okay. So that's interesting. So, so you didn't do any actual intercepts, but I suspect you probably launched on alert during the rotation. We did uh, sitting alert, and without getting into too many of the specifics of where they were flying or what would have initiated our reaction. Um, you're, you're always aware that, that it's, uh, again, with the, with the tension in the region that although the odds of an intercept may be lower, the, the consequence could be quite high. So there was a lot of, there's a lot of attention and effort paid to make sure that we do it as professional as we could every time to be as, as strict as we could to the procedures, just to make sure that, um, just to reduce any, uh, any, you know, risk that may have been present. Right, right. Uh, how did that translate to you guys in the mood within the detachment? Because um, not to say that any detachment would be lackadaisical or anything to that effect. You guys are always professional, but um, now it seems like it's just a little bit more, you have to be just 
more careful about any any move because like you said you don't want to be provocative or perceived as antagonizing anything no it's a, again it's another it's another great question it's a, it was probably one of the one of the bigger challenges was to stay as sharp as we could in that environment where we're not sure what especially as we were discussing Kurson is very close and you know there's a lot of uh, long range aviation i mean on the news especially in october large cruise missile strikes into Ukraine. And a lot of it is coordinating through all our various chains of command of does this change how we're, how we're operating here? Are we going to expect a mission shift? Um, are we going to fly more or less? You know, we're trying to trying to figure out exactly how we're going to posture our aircraft in preparation for really, we, we don't know. I mean, it's, a, it's the first time in a long time. You know, we haven't seen a war on this scale in Europe in a long time. And so to be in this type of proximity, it's, it's, it's just different. You know, there isn't a playbook for this environment that they've had. Uh, and it was put well that EAP is a fairly well-known entity over the years and through the Baltics and down to the southeastern flank. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing now is it's kind of EAP and, you know, more coordinated. One of the, one of the big changes, I should say, is that when – after the invasion, they moved a lot of forces forward, and NATO wanted to have all the forces train and maintain their, you know, fighting skills without just turning left for hours at a time. So they want to take it all and integrate it all. But how do you do that while also doing EAP? And that's been one of the challenges as well, and one of the, I'd say, unique relationships we've generated that's been different from rotations past is a very close working relationship with uh, NATO Air Command in Ramstein. Uh, so typically we do a lot of our reporting through CRC Crystal into Kaoktorion. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've really seen, and we sent a liaison officer up there actually as well to help, um, was to, you know, to affect that relationship with Aircom, which we haven't had in rotations past. And they were doing a lot of the exercise coordination of which we did, I think over 12. And to the previous conversation about just how we, we were preparing Typically, we would bring a duel. We didn't bring a duel. We brought all singles again, to, so we could be as operationally focused as we could. Mm-hmm. And we didn't. We didn't really have anything aside from thrashing Viper. Uh, we had exercise Blue Bridge, and then the uh, Bucharest fly pass for Romania National Day, which unfortunately was canceled due to weather. Oh, but too bad. Um, because everybody was focused on the operation, and we were looking at the exercise calendar from July to December. But you know, everybody was like, "We'll call you back." we're busy, which is a very fair answer. And so we, we weren't really sure what it was going to look like for four months if we were just going to hold alert and no exercise. And it turned out we held alert and we got actually a lot of good training done. So all kind of happening within a two week, uh, two week cycle. So it was a uh, kind of learn as you go. Yeah, it very much sounds it. And I guess you just have to be nimble and responsive to the changing situation as it unfolds. But at some point in time, you decided to send one of the jets back home. Um, where in the rotation did that happen? And and kind of what was the thinking about that? Uh, that happened in September. And that was more of an overall fleet management and then mission requirement. So we didn't need to maintain the uh, eight aircraft here. Yeah, because, you know, when when you were uh, just sharing what you did, it made me think that having eight aircraft or seven, as it may be, depending on when, um, would allow you the flexibility to maintain 
the enhanced air policing quick reaction alert posture and then also have the flexibility with the other jets to do other taskings that's just my thinking i'd love to know kind of what the reality was but it also depends on how many pilots you have there and and what, what kind of tempo you want to keep we'd always like to have more jets um but uh you know we we of course talked to the two wings back home and you know we're looking at the long-term plan as well and how we're going to manage all the aircraft and of course we're undergoing our uh, another modernization coming up as well uh, so how does it all fit together and how do we look at the the overall health of the fleet while achieving what we we always said we were going to do here which we could do with six so turned out to be seven but we 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 didn't need eight here right right okay um and just out of curiosity how many pilots did you guys have during this rotation Nine. Nine. Okay, cool. Um, so before we kind of leave this discussion on enhanced air policing, um, what haven't I asked you that's kind of different from previous rotations or, you know, something that's kind of interesting about what you've done or experiences? Um, I think everybody wants to have an intercept, right? Like, I mean, and I'm not saying that as we're looking for a fight but by no means, but you know, as a pilot from professional development, that's one of the highlights I think in a, in a career is to is to have the experience of intercepting uh, an aircraft or shadowing and building your skill sets. But it sounds like that did not happen. So, I know what you mean. I, I mean, I've flown up over the Beaufort Sea a lot out of Coal Lake, and uh, I intercepted an AN twenty six over Libya as well. And I I know that feeling of you know you, it's it's a bit of a a bit of a rush for sure. sure. Um, I think for the, and that's a conversation that's actually been rather difficult for a lot of people is like, what is the role really of a forward deployed force? Mm. And is it, is it a deterrence force? Is it a force of being? Is it power projection or is it NATO integra- integration? Is it NATO's resolve or is it Canada's commitment? I think it represents a little bit of all of them. One of the major changes here locally is that was the announcement of the arrival of the U.S. 101st Division. So thousands of U.S. troops now here, uh, a very large arrival when they got here. And it's it's created a lot of uh, really unique opportunities that we've had to train with them. We train with them almost you know, every every other day, I would wow. say. Cool. Um, so that's that's kind of one of the unique ones. And, it, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up. But I, I couldn't be more thankful for the efforts of the folks of the task force. And it's 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 something that gets i think um it's not understated but it it can't be overstated enough is that you know the task force i mean a squadron can pick up and move we know each other we know our we know the jets and we've talked a little bit about you know experiences in the airplane and the technicians all have their uh shared experience but one of the things that's been very unique from my perspective is taking a a, and this task force you know, 175-ish people from across Canada. So we've got members from Goose Bay all the way to Comox. Um, and some of them for the first time I've met here. They get off the plane and they're like, who am I working with? And they they can all, you know, get along and they can do their job. Some of our folks have never worked with an F-18 or really even seen one up close. And uh, within within a short amount of time, they're not only you know performing the mission, but they're enabling it to the high level, which we, we expect them to. Um, so that was a real pleasure to watch. That's awesome. And it just speaks to the professionalism of the Royal Canadian Air Force and everyone that is able to come together and, and execute on a mission. 
Um, and I what? and I have to, I have to say we do have three navy and uh, quite a few army here as well. So they would they wouldn't like it if I if I didn't uh, get that in there. Right, fair enough. It wasn't all air force, no. right? <laughs> um, so if I were to ask you, as you guys now close out this rotation, um, what is some of your biggest lessons learned from what you've experienced this time around? Because like you said, it's kind of been fluid being there and executing on this particular rotation, which is block 60 of NATO enhanced air policing. Uh, <laughs> I would say even though it's the sixth time we've been here, it's every time it's the first time uh, in the sense of, don't assume that the same as last year will be the same as next year. Uh, Cause certainly we, we saw that this time that there's a major change between uh, from pre 24 Feb to after 24 Feb and then how we react as the organization. Uh, so we can, you know, uh, as I kind of mentioned this, you know, the squadron is a relatively, it's not small, but it's a, it's a unit that can pick up and move, but how do we get members from across the country kind of out the door quickly or deliberately is another thing altogether. So that was, and certainly for my role, trying to trying to get people together to do that. And, and like I said, it's not me that's doing that. There's people across every every discipline that are really doing the a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, but that that was that was probably the biggest takeaway for me was was seeing that group come together, all the different agencies and the different wings, and where all those trades come from, and all the different experiences uh, that they bring. And it's been very interesting. Uh, there's a lot of very uh, interesting characters on this deployment, which I wouldn't change for anything. Uh, but uh, it's made it a challenge, but it's also made it a lot of fun as well. So I, I think that the folks have had a good time while they're yeah. here. Right on, right on. And, uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say that uh, I think this base as well has had a, it's a, you know, it's, it's, especially in the fighter force it's definitely got a presence i mean most pilots have come through here you know romania especially you know seven seven eap missions here now uh so there's definitely a they know that we're coming back not, not next year i guess but each year when we do come back they they they've been very good hosts to us so it's um they know all the previous folks that have been here and they know the squadrons and it's 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 got a comfort i guess to that as well that's awesome. Well, you kind of uh, led my next question, which is what is the plan for, for the next uh, rotation? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost been a yearly presence. Uh, but you just alluded to the fact that we might not be coming back next year. Uh, I don't believe we're coming back next year. Okay. Okay. So from my last chat with one of your detachment commander colleagues, uh, he had mentioned how instead of taking everything back to Canada, uh, that there would be stuff that would remain in Romania ready for the next rotation. Um, how are you guys managing that this year with perhaps a year gap in presence there? Uh, we, are, we are taking everything home this time. So although we are leaving Canada House, so Canada House will stay as an enduring presence, but uh, and some of the there's a, a couple of the hangars that are going to stay as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, all the gear that has accumulated over the years is coming home. Right, right. Okay. Uh, interesting. And so it is it, like, I mean, not to say that you can look into a crystal ball, but I was just wondering for pulling up stakes, you know, and bringing everything home is the potential that if we come back, it might be somewhere else. I, I honestly, I, I couldn't answer that question. Uh, I, I, I would be guessing just as much. I, I, sure. I honestly don't know. Sure, sure. So now, uh, w when is everybody heading home? It's already underway. We've got uh, 
all the jets are in Presswick right now in Scotland uh, with the tanker and they're due to head home tomorrow. And then uh, we've got about a few dozen people on route as well with a C-17. And then we've got the majority of our folks should be home on the 7th of December. Myself included, hopefully. So. Yeah, right on. Uh, well, back in time for the holidays and a well-deserved rest, I'm sure. That's right. Everybody's looking forward to seeing, uh, although they've enjoyed it here, they're definitely looking forward to seeing you know, friends and family and taking a bit of, taking a bit of time. Right on. Before I let you go, uh, what's next for 425 Squadron? Uh, the next major movement is uh, New Orleans in March. Oh, nice. That'll be very different than what yes, we're doing right. here. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. and the purpose for that is because it's kind of an unusual location. Like, you know, normally you go to like Tyndall or Miramar. Um, what's, what's happening? Because I know there's a Navy Joint Reserve base there. There is. Yeah. Normally we go to Miramar this time of the year, but there's some infrastructure change and just some... Uh, I don't have all the details on it, but it, it doesn't look like that's going to be where we're going. So they, we, you know, we sent out the team and they they had a look around to kind of what fits the needs for the training. And, and it seems that we've been to New Orleans uh, before. I haven't personally been, but um, the squadrons have been there a few times in the past. So okay. uh, it's it's a lot of, you know, integrate with the U.S. And, yeah. um, right on. Well, hopefully you'll be one of the pilots to go down or is it or is it usually most of the squadron? Uh, we're doing a handover with 433, so 433 will start, and then uh, they're going to be there for about three weeks, and then we'll we'll hand over midway, and then we take over for three more weeks. Oh, nice. So, awesome. All the air crew that's available and want to go, we'll, we'll have a chance. Oh, that's sweet. Right on. Hope you have a good time down there, and uh, Colonel Latwaitis, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been, uh, I've really enjoyed this chat. I thank you for your perspective and, and sharing what you guys have done during this rotation. And I wish you a safe journey home. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Uh, that, my friends, was Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Latwaitis. He is the detachment commander for ATF, that's Air Task Force Romania, uh, for Block 60 of the NATO Enhanced Air Policing Mission. Uh, if you have any questions for us, please write to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you join us for another episode of Go Bold. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>